0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. We're in Philippians chapter 2, if you would like to turn in your copy of Scripture. In fact, will you stand with me as we stand on the solid rock of God's Word? And, and I'm going to cover verses 1 through 4 today. But these verses are a prelude. They are the opening words to what I believe is one of the most beautiful expressions of the glory of the risen Christ that we'll talk about next week in verses 5 through 10. But here's the deal. Before we can really appreciate the glory of Christ in Philippians 2, 5 through 10, we need to have a proper perspective. We need to have the correct vantage point from which to see Jesus best. And so that's what I want us to do. It's not just have a perspective on life, but our purpose this morning is to get the proper vision of Jesus. And let me just begin by saying this. No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, you can always stand to have a clearer focus of Jesus. You need to know him more. You need to see more of who he is and all the beautiful things that he provides for you. These four verses will help us in that endeavor. So Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And what I want to show you in these verses, I want to show you how you have incredible strength in Christ, that can then help us to be united as one in what I'm going to call Christian sameness. And then finally, we're going to see how that leads to Christian selflessness, and that's when we will have the very best vision of Jesus, when we have died to ourselves and we are living fully in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that our perspective will be changed radically today, that you will help us to see that you are the centerpiece of our existence and our all in all. Speak to our hearts this morning, Jesus, and I pray you will change hearts in this room. We all need our hearts changed and conformed to your image. Please, Lord, please, Spirit, move. And We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, my wife and I uh, were in Italy. And um, as many of you know, I've been working in Italy uh, with church planting for several years and finally got around to, to go see Da Vinci's Last Supper. And I want to show you a picture, a very familiar picture. You guys all all know this. It's so, it's so interesting that one of the greatest world masterpieces, somebody decided after it was made, let's put a door there. And you can see there at the bottom, they cut off Jesus's feet on the bottom of the picture. It's just like, what in the world were they thinking? Um, this picture is about six 60% left, 40% of it have gone, uh, have just kind of uh, deteriorated and gone away over time. But as you look at the picture, I want you to see this familiar picture. And there's something going on here that, that your eye is drawn to. It's a, it's a little trick of, uh, that painters use. It was a new technique uh, when da Vinci painted this, but it's used now by artists all the time. And what is your eye immediately drawn to in this picture? Come on. Jesus why he's in the center so there's a trick here called perspective and the vanishing point and and to uh, if you look at this carefully, all the lines in the picture are moving in at this angle, and everything is focusing on Jesus. This is a trick. Uh, it's a two-dimensional surface, obviously, but it makes it look three-dimensional. And by Jesus being the very center, your eye is drawn to that because every line in the picture is forcing your eye on on Jesus. Now, take a look at this. This is this is what it would look like if we were just going to to, to show you that dynamic without the paint on it. Okay, the, the the point is this: as you see in this picture here right now, Jesus is the center. And this is a vision. This is, this next picture, if you'll show it, this is a vision of who Jesus is. He is at the center of the painting. This is how Da Vinci saw it. But what I want you to get in your mind is this, that that ultimately, as believers, we need to have our perspective conform to that of Christ. All the lines in your life, all of the, of the little paths and journeys and ideas and dreams, everything needs to be focused on Jesus. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to live life as we should. Now, today, what I want you to realize is, is that... Uh, Paul is telling us something in these four verses. Again, before he talks about Jesus and the majesty, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he wants us to have the best view of Jesus. So how do you get the best view of Jesus? The person praying to Jesus on bended knee has the clearest view, the most high-definition perspective of Jesus. So here's what's interesting. In my view, if I were to think about these first four verses, this is what's happening. Paul is showing us that we need to have the proper prayer perspective. Before we can understand verses 5 through 10 and 11 there, as before we can understand the glorified and uplifted Christ, we need to find that perspective where we can see him best. We need a high-definition view of Jesus that can only come when we are humbled in prayer, when, we are, when humility is what drives us. I think this is the perspective that that many times in America, in the Christian church, we're missing. Because we have beautiful worship facilities like this, because we have resources, sometimes we forget that our power is in prayer. And that the best view we're going to have of Jesus is when we do what Jesus told us to do, which is humble ourselves, not only before God, but before one another. And it's my belief that this passage here helps us to see that and to also encourage us to have that proper place of prayer so that we have the proper perspective so that we can have lives that purposefully change the world. I think this is key for us. Your perspective on Jesus is important because the Lord wants you to change the world and I'm not just saying that's not, that's not just a platitude or whatever that I would say to you because many of you are young and you've got your lives in front of you. I really believe this. Yes, heaven is your, is your home if you're a follower of Christ. But before heaven, I believe that God has purpose for you. And I want you to see Jesus more clearly today, because if you see him more clearly and understand him more fully, then your service to Jesus will be great, that you will have a life that matters, that you are going to make a big difference in the lives of others. And so let me encourage you in this way. Let's begin by talking about you. Now, I know, you know, the American idea is, you know, it's all about you. And it's not all about you today. But one thing I want to say to you, Christian, is this. Your power and strength is far greater than you realize. I think it's exciting to think about all the things that God has given you. So let me give you a little formula here. One, one real short sentence that, that, that we're going to build on. And it's this sentence. God's grace is rooted in Christ and actualized in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm getting that from verse 1. Verse 1 is actually sort of Trinitarian in terms of formula. And it's telling us that because God's grace is poured out in Christ and because we have the Spirit at work, we are able to do incredible things for God. So the power that we have as believers is Trinitarian power. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit at work to give us the power we need to do the work that God has called us to do. Now take a look at the first two words of verse 1. Notice he says, so if. Now usually when you use those two words together, you're insinuating that maybe it's not true, that maybe it wouldn't happen. But that's not what's going on here. Paul is actually saying to us, hey guys, You have encouragement in Christ. That's the first thing. Secondly, you have comfort from love. Third, participation in the Spirit. And finally, an affection and sympathy. And I want to talk about that, those four different things, because those are your strengths. You have these strengths in Jesus. Now let's rewind the tape just a little bit. Last week we talked about in the last few verses of chapter 1, Paul is getting real with us in terms of the challenges we're going to face in this world. If you look back at verses 29 and 30 with me, it says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Notice the word conflict. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So here's what Paul says. He says, guys, if you've got your eyes on Jesus, that doesn't mean that it's a trouble-free existence. It doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. But in the midst of suffering, he says there is still encouragement in Christ. In one sense, when I, when I hear this word encouragement, I think of, for me, it's the picture of like a crowd rooting for its team. It's March Madness, right? And so you watch these crowds cheering on their teams, and it makes a difference. I mean, when home court advantage means something, right? I mean, people get excited. Well, I believe that we have home court advantage in the sense that Jesus is rooting for us. We have encouragement in Christ. It's a beautiful picture. He is here to console us when we are sad, when we've lost, when we need encouragement, when we feel weak. We know that God is there to help us. What a beautiful thing to know that that Jesus is in our corner. This is a strength that you have in Christ. A second thing, notice this phrase, comfort in love. Comfort. Now, this word, some have said, paints the picture of a person sitting next to a warm fireplace after having been out in the cold all day long. F.B. Meyer said that. Um, I see this word, this idea, this phrase, comfort in love. I just see it as that, that happy place that we have where we are able to refresh and restore. It's the safe place where we can have Sabbath. So here's the deal. If you are in Christ, I want you to know that you can experience comfort in love. I think this is a major deal for us today. Many of you love Jesus and are, are wanting to serve him. But one of the things we're not doing well, church, is we're not resting in him. And, and we're not finding that safe place Many of us are not growing closer to Jesus because the pace is frenetic. We're, we're going so fast that we're not enjoying Sabbath, but a strength that Paul mentions. And he wants you to know, if you're going to have a good perspective on Jesus, you need to experience his comfort in love. Let me just ask you, when was the last time you took comfort in the love that flows from the cross of Christ? When was the last time that you thought about the cross and realized that that has freed you from the curse of sin and death? There's comfort there. There's there's something warming to our souls, and it's something that we need. This is the strength you have. Not only are you encouraged in Christ, but you're comforted in his love. And thirdly, he speaks of participation in the Spirit. One of the dangers, I think, in the church today, when we read the Gospels, is to keep Jesus 2,000 years in the past. You know, when we read histories of of great leaders or philosophers of the past, we often leave them in the past because that's where they are. That's their context. That's, That's where they lived and died. But you need to remember that Jesus, he died and rose again. And, and before he left, he told us that he would leave us the Holy Spirit that would dwell with us, the very Spirit of Christ. So, Christian, know this. Another strength that you have is, is that the Holy Spirit wants to work with you. The world wants you to feel like you're alone, but the Spirit ensures that you are never alone. We have the work of the Holy Spirit, and you cannot live your life for Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. And if you're lacking power in your life, it's because the Spirit of God is not working as it ought to in your life. Jesus is alive, brothers and sisters, and his Spirit is at work in you. The final thing in strength that we have is affection and sympathy. It is good to know that God not only loves us, but he really does have sympathy for us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 speaks of Jesus not afraid to call us brothers. That he has suffered in every way that we will suffer. Jesus truly loves you but he also knows the pains and the trials and travails of this world. You are not alone. When you are facing difficulties in this world, know this. What a great strength to know that God's love and compassion in Christ is with you. These two words here, um, uh, this idea of affection and sympathy, some have said it's the picture of a nurse giving tender care to a sick person. This speaks of God's willingness to enter into our pain and suffering, our wounds, our emotional scars, and bring spiritual encouragement. Many of you have testimonies of how God has has bound you up, has healed you from past wounds. But this is something I want you to begin to think about because this is where the sermon is going. What God has done for you in terms of healing you, the affection, okay, the sympathy is meant to change you so that you can pour out affection and sympathy toward others, God doesn't want you just to be healed uh, for the sake of of just yourself, but, but the things that God is doing in your life are here to make you stronger so that you can be used by God to do great things for the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but it's just easier for me to think of myself as, as the wretch that's re- referred to in that, in that old hymn, right? Amazing grace uh, that saved a wretch like me. And there is a part of us where we need to be honest about our sinfulness and our sinful tendencies. But, but Christian, listen to me. Believer in this room, hear me out. Um, The the strengths that Paul has enumerated here, the four strengths, are your strengths. The devil wants to always remind you of your weakness. But I'm here today, and I think Paul's word to us today is that we have these strengths we can build on. And when we are strong in Christ, and this is where we're going to take a turn here, an unexpected turn in the journey together. When we understand our strengths in Christ, it doesn't give us the ability to rise above other Christians. It gives us the ability to join with other Christians. So let's talk about Christian sameness. It's so interesting because I think most of the time when we think about growing strong in Christ, we think, well, God's going to call me and I'm going to be a great leader. I'm going to be at the, at the tip of the spear. I'm going to lead the charge. I'm going to be the one that God uses. They're going to write biographies about me someday. But that's not the goal. The goal is not to stand out from the pack. The goal is, is to take the strengths that Christ has given us and stand together for Jesus. This is where the church is different than the world. And, and this is one of many ways. But, you know, it's interesting. The world, and especially our culture, sort of teaches uniqueness and teaches us that we all need to kind of find our personality. And I think this is funny because, like, we're all trying to find our personality, but all of our cars look alike. And like if you're in a certain socioeconomic class, you're wearing the same kind of jeans and the same kind of shoes. And it's so funny And our, we say, oh, I'm going to be me. I'm going to be an individual. And all we end up doing is being like everybody else. So what's interesting is this sameness and that conformity. We're actually driven more as human beings toward conformity. We just think we're being individuals. Now, why are we built that way? I think we're built that way because God wants us to see that we are not stronger as individuals. We are stronger when we are together in Christ. When we understand our sameness in Christ, that's when we're powerful. Now, I'm not just making this up. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy, Paul says. Complete it. Make it full. Make it perfect. By being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Notice all the sameness. Notice all the conformity. Now, again, the culture is always telling us that we need to not conform. But Jesus is telling us here, I think Paul is saying very clearly that when we are strong in Jesus, when we have verse one's strengths, that's when we can have verse two's sameness, unity of purpose, togetherness in the gospel. This is why we're driven to conform. Now, one author puts it this way, the world often misses the fact that our identity is informed by outside stimuli and not inward drive. This this is interesting to me. Our identity, we're always like developing identity from outside stimuli. Well, ultimately, Paul's word, his phrase in Philippians is to be in Christ. So in this sense, before we become Christians, we need to realize that that it is in Christ. He is the outward stimuli. If you have him in your heart, of course, then he's a part of who you are. But your identity needs to be shaped and formed by what we see in the Gospels, what we know to be true in God's Word. This is a powerful idea, and it's necessary for the church. When we get into verses 5 and following, we're going to learn that we need to have the mind of Christ. Well, again, verses 1 through 4 are aiming us towards that mind of Christ. And how we do that is we surrender our hearts to Jesus. And we say, it's not about me. It's not about me getting what I want. It's about being in Christ. Now, I showed you some art a minute ago. I showed you uh, da Vinci's famous painting. Let me show you a less famous Italian painting. It's Venetian. And it is absolutely, it's a little hard to see because... It's busy, isn't it? Now, if I were to ask you what's the focus of this painting, would you have any idea? You see a bridge there? That's the Rialto Bridge back when it was wooden and not marble. Uh, You see all these people down here. You see the boats in the canal. Here's what's interesting about this painting this is a classic, typical Venetian work of art. And here's why it does not have a center. In fact, the main subject is a miracle that supposedly took place with a relic. And the action, the actual action of this painting is up there in the left-hand top corner. You see where there's like a balcony up there? That's where the miracle is taking place. But unless someone points that out to you, you would never know. The center is really not in the center. Now, the Venetians had a reason for doing this. They believed very much that individuality would cause their city to crumble. They believed if one person had too much power, um, that that one person would ruin the state. So in the Venetian worldview, everybody played their part. So if you look at a typical Venetian painting, it's busy and you see a lot of people and you see all walks of life because that's the image that they were trying to express, that it's not about one person standing above the rest. It's all of us standing together. That's a pretty good lesson. Now, Christ is not the center like in the da Vinci. That, that's a powerful image. But in this image, what we see is, is that nobody needs to stand out, that the power of the miracle, the power of God can take place in the midst of all of the madness and confusion. When I was in Poland, Nikolai, the word that he kept saying in English as all these kids are running around, he would look at me and he'd go, smile, big smile on his face. He'd go, crazy crazy. And if you've ever been uh, at Children's Path and around all those kids and all of the, the fun and the energy, it's crazy. It's crazy. I don't know the Ukrainian word for crazy yet, but whatever it is, it's crazy. Okay. And so in in this painting, what we see is, I believe, a picture of what God is trying to do. He's saying, all of us have a strength. We all have a place. But ultimately, nobody needs to rise up above another. We need to have a sameness. We need to make sure that we're unified. Unity makes church sweet and ministry powerful. And let me say this. It is not boring to conform to the mind of Christ. You are never going to have a boring life if you conform to the way of Christ. I believe Paul is saying in verse 2, get your act together. You have these strengths in Jesus. Now join together. Get rid of your agendas, your individual agendas, and find out what God wants. Now listen, God has an agenda for Ridgecrest. And Second Baptist down the road or Crossway on the north side of town... They are a church, and God has glorious gospel-centered agendas for them too. We celebrate each church and what God is doing in them. But we need to embrace the agenda, the plan, the vision, the dream that God has for Ridgecrest. And we're only able to do that when we have sameness, when we have unity of purpose, when we say God has put us here on this earth to make a difference for his kingdom in this way. We must make sure that our will is the will of Jesus. One of the saddest things I've witnessed over the years is when a person loses the idea that we are a part of the body and they begin to think that their individual will is the will of God or the will of the church. I can remember many times as a young pastor, someone would say, Well, you know, the church believes this. Well, I was younger, I didn't know any better, but later on I found out that wasn't what the church believed, that's what that guy believed. And he or she sometimes honestly believed that what they thought was the will of God's people and even the will of God. Now, one of the ways that happens where we get off the mark is when we are not humbling ourselves together and when we are not praying together. The only way to avoid putting self in the center instead of Jesus is is when we're not listening to one another, not praying together, not allowing... Christ as the singular focus, when we have Christ in our vision, then we realize that everything around us begins to not fade away, but but, but kind of join together. We're not noticing the differences anymore. When we have our eyes on Jesus, we're not so worried about somebody thinking a little different than we do or believing a little different as it relates to a ministry or an idea. Now, doctrinally, we want to not allow there to be a lot of, uh, of, of uh, differences. We have to be together in that way. But so many times, that's not where people are disagreeing. We're just disagreeing on preferences. When you're disagreeing on preferences, it's because Jesus isn't in clear focus. When Jesus is in clear focus in the church, then, then we're able to be same in one accord together. And This brings us to the main point of the sermon, which is if we have the strengths of Jesus uh, operative in our hearts, and then we're able to say The strengths we have, we join together in sameness and in unity. It is then that we can be selfless. Now, this is what prepares us for the image of Christ that Paul gives us in verses 5 through 11. Now, listen to what, let me just read some of these verses to you. Have this mind, verse 5, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, friends, that is the ultimate example of selflessness. And look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Look at the text with me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So notice what happens here. Paul tells us what we're supposed to do, which is die to self and to think of other people. And then he goes on and illustrates that with Jesus emptying himself even to the point of death on a cross. How is it, church, that we are going to be able to change the world? Well, we've got to be like Christ. And to be like Christ, that means that we cannot be selfish. We have to be selfless. And that's what God is calling us to do. I think that's the main idea of this text. Yes, you are strong in Jesus. Yes, we are stronger together in unity. But ultimately, each one of us have to be selfless. We are trained from the time we are little to look out for number one. But the problem is we're not told that number one is Jesus, not us. Look out for number one, yes. But as da Vinci's painting showed us, Jesus is the vanishing point. He's the center perspective. He's everything. And too many of us, we have put ourselves in that middle position. And that's why our lives are out of balance. Let me give you four ideas here that could help us move towards selflessness in Christ. One, we can only be strong and unified when we are humble like Christ. We need humility in the world today. The church needs people who are humble before the Lord, on their knees in prayer. Secondly, we will be most Christ-like when we find the best in others and the worst things in ourselves. I love this quote by F.B. Meyer. I think he's right on. I think our default position is to think that we are good and others are bad. But I think that the Christ-centered way is to assume that our hearts are wicked and to give other people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I believe that when we're honest about our sinful condition, this is not so hard to do. I think it's, it's an honest way to live. And it opens our ears to hear what other people have to say. To hear a word from the Lord. To hear God at work in other people. Third point, those who have sameness, which we talked about a moment ago, in Christ can be selfless toward one another. We need to realize that unity is the only way forward here. The fourth point, if we would be less self-centered, we could hear the needs of others more clearly and know what souls need most. This fourth point I've thought a lot about today because when we talk to people so often, we're more concerned about answering their question and sounding like we know what we're talking about more so than really listening to them. Some people have conjectured that Jesus, of course, had all the miracle power in the world, but one of the reasons why he changed so many people's lives is because he actually listened to them. I wonder how many lives we would change if we were selfless enough to actually listen to what people are saying. I've noticed that people will often tell you more about their hearts than you asked, but we don't hear about their hearts because we're too worried about our self-image or worried about sounding smart or worried about sounding holy instead of really listening to what the person is saying. Selfless people listen well because they can actually hear the other. I think that Jesus is calling us to something better. A lifestyle of humility. Is Christ at the center? I just want to ask you, I, I think that this morning the realization is is that many of you as believers in Christ, once upon a time, Jesus was right in the middle. But over time, Selfless service to Christ has been replaced with a little bit of selfishness. And that bitterness and that angst and anger that's in your heart, it's only there because Jesus is no longer in that center space. But I also think about some of us in this room who the the truth is, even if you've been coming to, to church a long time, if you've not really had a rich relationship with Jesus, my question for you is, was Jesus ever in the center? I think many of us that were raised in church, Jesus has been in the frame somewhere all along. But I'm not asking you if Jesus is in the frame, I'm asking you if Jesus is in the center frame. Do you truly have Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you following him? If your life is a mess, if you've not had a deep relationship with Jesus, no matter how long you've been in church, then friend, let me just encourage you in this way. Come to know Christ and surrender in this altar everything to him and make Christ your all. It's the only way. None of this works. You cannot have the strength of Christ if you are not in Christ. You cannot be unified in the church if you are not in Christ. You cannot be selfless as Jesus was selfless if you are not in Christ. And so I implore you with all my heart, be in Christ. Receive Jesus because, listen, it all boils down to this. There is a heaven and there is a hell. There is an eternity with Jesus in heaven forever, and there is an eternity separated from Jesus forever in the pit of hell. That are Those are the realities, the spiritual realities that we are dealing with every Sunday. Every day that we interact with the Word, we are reminded that we are playing for keeps our souls matter your soul matters and it all hinges on your perspective not just of life but your perspective of Jesus where is Jesus where is Jesus in your heart if he's not in the center please come thanks for listening For additional resources, to learn more about us, or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.